0: A few months ago, I was in the house looking outside, admiring the beautiful creation, the birds singing, the grass greening, the sun shining. Suddenly, I see one of my boys running, and he takes down his brother. (laughs) Then he rolled him over, put him in handcuffs, and stood him up and walked him off. They were apparently playing good guys and bad guys. Sarah says they fight about which one gets to be the bad guy, which isn't a good sign for pastor's kids. It's built into us from an early age to divide the world into good guys and bad guys. It's not something that needs to be taught. You don't teach people to play that game. It's built into them. Movie directors know this. That's why they direct movies where the good guys face the bad guys. In, in the really, really, really old westerns, The bad guys always wore gray and rode dark horses. Whenever they spoke, they spoke with a snarl. The good guys always wore white hats and rode white horses. From time to time, they would stop and sing a song to us with their guitars. Uh, Modern movies are a little more creative. The bad guys don't always wear the same things, and neither do the good guys. But it's always the same plot. You have... Good guys and you have bad guys. Rocky Balboa and Ivan the Russian. Batman and the Joker. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles versus Shredder and his masked ninjas. Some of these bad guys live on in infamy. Darth Vader. uh, Mr. Potter and It's a Wonderful Life. Biff from Back to the Future. The whole wrestling industry. WWF WWE, it's it's wrestling. If you're from the north, it's wrestling. If you're from the south, but uh, the whole wrestling industry is built off of this. In every match, you have a good guy versus a bad guy. A- in their business, they call the good guy the babyface, and the bad guy they call the heel. The classic example of this was Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant. Now, this good guy bad guy stuff doesn't just live in movies and WWE. It lives in literature as well. There's always a villain and a hero, an antagonist and the protagonist. Shakespeare liked his antagonist, so he created Lady Macbeth. In the 1847 novel, Jane Eyre, you meet Mr. Rochester, the antagonist. It's in our children, it's in our movies, it's in our literature, it's in our songs. John Durrell wrote a song in 1980 that went like this. There's always the good guys and the bad guys. Some things will never change. The good guys always say that crime doesn't pay. The bad guys always claim both sides are the same. The good guys and the bad guys. There are saints and there are scoundrels. Now we've managed to make it to 1 Samuel chapter 11 verse 13. This is another classic good guys versus bad guys story. So I want to introduce to you the good guys. Or in the wrestling context, the babyfaces. Or in the literature context, the protagonist. Or in the movie context, the heroes. The first is Saul. Saul grew Aren't you glad that uh, you're not outside right now? You hear that? You hear that rain? That's right, good. I'll preach a little longer. Uh, so Saul grew up on a farm. It was a big family farm. He grew up shoveling manure, pulling calves out of the birth canal, planting, harvesting. He did it all. He was a legit country boy. He wasn't a poser like Blake Shelton and Kane Brown. He never got lost in the backyard and had to call the fire department to come and find him. Saul isn't a, a Nashville country boy. He's a farm country boy. He chews snuff. He wears Wranglers. The people wanted a king like the other nations and God said, fine, Saul will be your king. They looked at this young farm boy. He was tall and stout and good looking. They loved him. Saul did really well as he matured into Israel's king. He defeated the Ammonites. He saved Israel from having to wear a patch over their right eye. Just as Saul didn't stay a farm boy, he didn't stay a young king either. He began to age. He began to mature. He married. He had children. Three boys and two girls. He named one of his boys Jonathan. Jonathan was gifted. He was gifted as a strategist. He laid out war plans well. He was gifted as a gatherer. People flocked to him. He was gifted as a speaker. He inspired devotion from his men. Jonathan was a bold leader. He wasn't afraid to walk into a battle outnumbered. He wasn't afraid of the moment. He had ice in his veins. Jonathan will take center stage in these two chapters, then step off the stage for a bit before returning to center stage for the rest of the book. If this were an old western, Saul and Jonathan would be wearing white hats and riding on white horses because they are the good guys. They represent Israel, God's elect nation. God chose a certain people to be His people. He called them to, by His name. They were the apple of His eye. He gave them a piece of His promised land. In a way, the whole nation of Israel is wearing white hats and riding white horses. These are God's good guys. That's why they sing to us throughout the Bible. Now, let's talk about the bad guys. Or in the wrestling context, the heels. Or in the literature context, the antagonist. Or in the movie context, the villains. We call them the Philistines. They are the perennial enemies of Israel during this day. They are the never-ending, all-pervasive, constant threat. They are mentioned 150 times in the book of 1 Samuel. They were sea peoples, pirates of the Old Testament, sea dogs, scoundrels, blackbeards, mentally... Color them gray. See them riding dark horses and speaking with a snarl. Measured by any conventional standard, ancient or modern, these were a nation of Hannibal lectors. On these pages we find the encounter, the collision, the battle between God's good guys and the bad guys. Notice in our text, verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. Saul is taking, we we may be spending the night here. I don't think I've ever heard it that loud before. Saul is taking uh, 2,000 soldiers to the highlands, further away from the threat. Jonathan took 1,000 soldiers a few miles away in Gibeah. Uh, These these Israelites are in the mountains, they are mountain people. They know the high country like no one else. These rugged conditions set the scene for the guerrilla warfare ahead. The bad guys maintained a garrison at a little place called Geba. They built these garrisons all throughout the territory to oppress Israel. It was a, a fortified military outpost staffed with guards. Jonathan and his 1,000 men went after the garrison in Geba and brought it down. They killed all the guards and took possession of the garrison. Saul heard of his son's victory and he blew the trumpet calling for mobilization of all the troops at Gilgal. The Philistines raised the alarm. The Hebrews are in revolt. Jonathan's little victory caused quite a stink. The Philistines are stirred up and they're mad as hornets. Verse 5, and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Jonathan has awakened a sleeping giant. There is a fierce rage. The Philistines come with 30,000 two-man chariots, 6,000 dark horses, and ground troops like the white sand on the seashore, except they're dressed in gray. This was not a measured response, <laughs> not an equal retaliation. Gordon Ketty uh, compares this response to the US response when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. They stirred up a massive enemy. They were unprepared for the magnitude of the Philistines' reaction. By the way, notice the language. A multitude like the sand on the shore. That's language that God used to promise Abraham many descendants. That's a good guy phrase. Now used for the bad guys? Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, The people hid themselves in caves, and in holes, and in rocks, and in tombs, and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. But Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. While both sides prepare for war, Samuel, the old priest, tells Saul to wait seven days. And he will come to Gilgal and offer a sacrifice before they go to war. This was a common spiritual exercise. It's asking for the favor of God before the upcoming battle. But waiting seven days seems like suicide. Saul's army is melting away. His enemy was mobilizing. He scans the horizon and hour by hour he sees more chariots come against him. He sees his army hemorrhaging soldiers. He's had enough. Now is the time to act. Now is the time to act. He barks a command. Bring the livestock. I will make the burnt offering and the peace offering myself. The text points out that as soon as Saul finished making the sacrifice, Samuel showed up. Walking slow with his cane. The old priest. Verse 11, Samuel said, What have you done? done just like the words to Adam and Eve what have you done just like the words to Cain what have you done it's a question but a rhetorical one it's a diagnostic one the old priest Samuel wants to wants King Saul who's in the prime of his life to realize the seriousness of his sin you're not a priest You're not authorized to make these sacrifices before going to war. Any sacrifice that was a prelude to battle was to be done by a priest only. Saul defends his sin. It was the army's fault for defecting. It was your fault, Samuel, for not showing up. It was the Philistines' fault for attacking. People that are good at making excuses are rarely good at anything else. Saul is showing an inability to admit his fault. His actions were more than just being hasty. It signals that he didn't trust in God. Verse 14, Samuel says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You have played the fool, Saul. Because of this, there will be no dynasty. Your son, Jonathan, will not be king after you. He's capable, he's a leader, but he will not be king because of your lack of faith in an hour of crisis. See, crisis can be a fertile ground for heroism. But you have, played the, you have not played the hero. You have not played the good guy. You have not played the protagonist. You have not played the baby face. Now does does this not seem extreme? Saul makes one small mistake and God ends his dynasty forever. This event shows that small matters of negligence are often considered by God to be major indicators of a heart problem. Let's just step back for a moment. Why would the king allow Samuel to call him a fool? Well, because on Israel's org chart, a priest was higher than a king. In this story, the priest's sacrifice was more important than the king's war. This is not an immediate rejection of Saul himself as king. He will remain king for a while longer. This is just a rejection of his dynastic kingship. Samuel, the old priest, leaves without making the sacrifices he had come to make. Now, back to the battle. Israel's army has gone from 3,000 strong to a mere 600. All the others are playing hide and seek in the rocks and in the graveyards. Verse 17, and the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. They went in three directions, north, west, and southeast. They are creating instability and fear throughout the company of the Hebrews. They are squashing rebellions and blocking additional troops from reaching Saul. Then we have a little historical note that reflects the status of the Israelites under Philistine domination. It's like the, the narrator is pressing pause on the battle to let us know, verse 19. Now there were no blacksmiths to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said... Let the Hebrews make themselves swords, or lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. The bad guides have removed all of the blacksmiths from Israel. They banned them from working in Israel to prevent any weapon development. This was a way of forcing the mountain people to be dependent on them. Even the note here, the Philistines paid one thing for sharpening and Israel paid another. Even to sharpen and repoint their agricultural tools was an exorbitant price. You have that historical note because the narrator reveals Israel goes to war with no weapons and this is why they have no weapons well I've I've got a pitchfork I've got a sharp shovel I've got a rake they were reduced to weapons made of wood and stone weapons like slings and clubs the Philistines had the advantage in technological warfare they were more advanced there were only two swords among all of Israel's army Notice verse 22. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. 1 Samuel 14, verse 1. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, this is one of the two swords in Israelite possession at this moment, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Jonathan, this this gifted son, this gifted leader, wants to take another garrison. Not with 1,000 men in his company like last time. He wants to do it with just two. He acts without telling his father. The, the, The strain of Saul's indecision was more than Jonathan could handle. Saul had a history of indecision. Now he's hesitant to act in the face of superior forces. Maybe he's hesitant because he's fearful. Maybe he's hesitant because Samuel rebuked him and he knows those sacrifices he made were not accepted by the Lord. Jonathan didn't want his father's unbelief to veto his daring venture, so he did it without proper military approval. Verse 2 of chapter 14. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Midcron. Now let's talk about this. It could be translated, Saul was sitting. He is sitting instead of acting. He's sitting on his blessed assurance instead of fighting for his people like a fearless king. Alistair Begg says, Saul was sitting at pomegranate cave. Sounds like a very nice coffee shop, doesn't it? He's ordering a tall decaf cappuccino <laughs> sitting in the, that's a movie line, as one person got it, I'm glad. He's sitting in his, in his cave and he's showing his timidity, a, a timidity his, his son did not possess. Now notice who's in the cave with Saul, verse 3, Ahijah, the son of Ahatub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. This is not a needless genealogy. It's showing who Saul is keeping company with. The narrator is casting a dark shadow over his company of friends in the coffee cave. You remember Phineas from the previous chapters? That meat-loving woman chasing priest? Well, he's collaborating with his grandson, a priest whose dynasty is doomed. This shows that Saul has lost or ignored Samuel as a spiritual advisor. Now the scene shifts to Jonathan's small, covert military operation. Jonathan uh, approaches the the Philistine garrison. There's a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. In case you don't know what a rocky crag is, uh, I brought a modern picture. The the narrator comes, the narrator names one rocky crag Bozes and the other rocky crag Sinna. The names mean slippery and thorny. Not very inviting for hikers. One commentator said the rocky crags and ravine which Jonathan and his armor bearer have to negotiate is precipitous and involves skillful rock climbing. Chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these, notice this word, uncircumcised, Would you mark that? That's another name for the bad guys. Uncircumcised. And then notice this. It may be. My favorite two words in in, in today's study. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. There's no dogmatism here. There's no presumption on Jonathan's part. What is he saying? God may give us victory, but he doesn't have to give us victory. I love that two-word phrase, may be. There's beauty in the balance. Maybe be is a part of faith. Behind Jonathan's daring act was the simple conviction of his faith. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan's faith arises even when there is no reason for optimism. But he knows that no situation for Israel is hopeless. Because God is Israel's God. He's assessing this situation from the perspective of faith. The Lord is the invincible warrior who can deliver by many or by few. He doesn't need a majority. He alone makes a majority. Jonathan knows that when it seems most hopeless, God often shows up. That's why the remnant does not lose heart. Verse 7. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. This is even more eloquent in the Hebrew. I am with you like your heart is with you. Verses 8 through 12 show Jonathan's plan of attack. His blueprint defied all military logic. First, he will give up the element of surprise. He says, after we've survived the first rocky crag descent and we reach the ravine where it's all open, we will then show ourselves to the Philistine garrison, throw rocks, start yelling, let them know we are here. Secondly, if, if they come down their rocky crag to fight us, we will just wait for them. If they say, bring it on, then we will climb the second rocky crag to reach their military outpost. Now, church, I'm not a military tactician, but this is a bad plan. (laughs) But they went forward with it. The Philistine garrison just laughed when they heard the banging of pots and the yelling. They saw two little ants down in the ravine. They laughed. Look who came out of their little holes. They yell, come on up. We would love to kill you before our midday snack. The bad guys are taunting the good guys. Jonathan told his armor bearer, this is the sign that the Lord is with us. Let's go rock climbing. Verse 13, then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him and they fell. Let's stop here. That was not what I was expecting. There's no way they could take this fall and live. That's 2,000 feet above sea level. No, that's not what it's saying. Jonathan and his armor bearer didn't fall. Keep reading. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. Two men killed 20 men. The narrator even gets specific. They did this in the size of an area plowed by a yoke of oxen in a day. At this very moment, there was an earthquake, a a perfectly timed tremor, a trembling of God, and then God dropped a supernatural fear on them. The Hebrew word terror is mentioned three times in verse 15. The Philistines start fighting one another. Saul and his men are situated about half a mile away from that garrison. And the watchman, the towerman, sees 30,000 two-man chariots go crazy. They see the Philistines killing one another. The bad guys are melting away. They see the flag at the local garrison has been torn down. Saul says, take a roll call. Who is doing this? King, we had 600 men. Now we have Five hundred and ninety-eight. Two are missing. Find out who they are. King, I found out. It's your son and his armor bearer. Saul decides to mount and attack. Get the men ready. Advance on my go. King, they are ready. Awaiting your word. Saul. Saul. go. These 598 men chased the Philistines, beat them with clubs, broke their necks. Verse 21, now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. In other words, the former turncoats switched allegiances. Those hiding in the caves, the 2,400 other soldiers, they came down and joined the chase. God saved Israel. God saved the good guys. What a day. How could they win without swords? They don't need swords. The Philistines are stabbing one another. Verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people. Saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening. And I am avenged of my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Do you hear that self-centered mentality? avenge myself not our enemies but my enemy Saul is making this personal it's a little touch of I me my mine this isn't zeal for the Lord this is a preoccupation with personal vengeance he has ulterior motives then Saul does something foolish again he imposes a ban on food They are pursuing enemies through the hot, beating sun. They are involved in in hand-to-hand combat, crossing rugged terrain. People need a certain caloric intake to continue this physically taxing mission. One scholar pointed out that that there was historical precedence precedence for this food ban. It wasn't unheard of, This had happened before, but this one was not commanded by the Lord. Remember, Saul isn't hearing from the Lord. He's hearing from a rejected priesthood. If God commanded this vow, God would have given his soldiers the strength to go without food. But this wasn't from the Lord. We don't know Saul's motives in this. We could speculate. It could have been a religious motive. Maybe an effort to gain God's favor. Maybe he thinks God is more likely to listen if there's some self-denial. He could be trying to force God's involvement, drawing God into battle instead of following God into battle. So it could have been a a religious motive, or it could have been a practical motive. He doesn't want to slow the mission by allowing his soldiers to eat. These men are hungry, tired, famished. The word faint is used over and over and over again in the narrative. But they will not eat because of Saul's prohibition. His rash vow that tacked a curse on the end. Whoever eats, dies. Verse 25. And when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Now, I don't know what it is about honey in Philistine territory, but this isn't the only time honey is mentioned in this geographical area. Samson had to run in with honey. Jonathan was unaware of his father's rash vow, so when he saw the honey, he put some in his teeth and then put some on his Cheerios, like all of God's good people. (laughs) The soldiers yell, Stop! Your father commanded all of us to refrain from eating until we mow down the enemy. You didn't hear it because you were defeating that Philistine garrison. But your father did prohibit it. Anyway, they finish up the mop-up operation. Verse 31. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood the famished forces are now relieved from the vow these hungry hungry hippo, hungry hungry soldiers it's a wonderful game these hungry hungry soldiers butchered philistine cattle and goats and sheep wherever they found them uh, they then glutted themselves with meat and blood And all the works, the narrator uses the word pounced. It's used in other places of birds of prey descending on their victims. This is a virtual feeding frenzy, like 3,000 piranhas all at once. In, In their haste, they did not drain the blood, which was required of the good guys in Israel, because blood was the symbol of life, and life belongs to Yahweh. Normally, they killed animals on something elevated, like a stone, that way they could drain the blood. Basically, what these people did here was not cook the meat properly. Someone ran and told Saul, The soldiers are doing something Leviticus prohibits. Saul said, Roll a big rock over here now. So they did. That night, each soldier, one after another, led an animal there to be butchered. Verse 35. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Then Saul said, "Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them." And they, the soldiers, said, "Do whatever seems good to you." But the priest said, "Let us draw near to God here." It's interesting. Saul is concerned that things be done properly with the soldiers eating. But there isn't even the slightest concern that he goes about the next mission with the proper approval of God. One of the priests, probably Ahijah, slows him down. He said, let's let's just find out what God thinks about this. Verse 37, and Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into into the hand of Israel? The saddest verse, but God did not answer him that day. There was no green light or red light. Why isn't God answering? God would not answer the king or the priest. We are the good guys. Why aren't you speaking to us? Saul discerns that there must be sin in the camp. That's why God isn't answering. Who sinned during the battle today? Who ate? All the soldiers were quiet including his son, Jonathan. Saul called for the high priest ephod, which Ahijah was wearing, which was attached to the best breastplate, and, and, it, and it looked like this. It had stones in it. Two of them were called Urim and Thummim. We don't know how they functioned. There is speculation, but nothing definitive. Uh, th- these two stones were objects used for divining God's will. Possibly the Urim meant curse and the Thummim meant innocent. They divined and the Thummim turned up for the army. They were cleared. Now it was between Saul and Jonathan. Look at verse 42. Then Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him. I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Then Saul said, You will die. The soldiers protested. No, this isn't right. You've got to stop this. All the soldiers side with Jonathan. People were just drawn to him. The rank and file say, Saul Jonathan was the reason we won the battle today so they ransomed Jonathan they redeemed him they saved him the word in the text is redeemed they paid some price there is a significant little note at the end of the chapter that some Philistines escape Saul missed his opportunity for total destruction that means we will see the Philistines later in the narrative but let us apply this good guy bad guy story sermons do not apply themselves they need preachers so I have three applications for you application number one I'm stumped who are the good guys again God saved Israel God saved the good guys they were the good guys right I'm reading and I'm not sure Jonathan was sinning by eating the honey. Saul was sinning with a forced fast. His cowardness, the unlawful sacrifice. Israel was sinning by eating meat with blood in it. All the good guys turned heel. The protagonists turned antagonists. The heroes behave like villains. I know they started out in white hats and white horses, but it kind of looks like they're all in gray clothing now. Riding dark horses. This story doesn't fit perfectly into my good guy, bad guy categories. Well, what does the New Testament say? We always read the Bible forward toward the end. We find this in Romans 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, You could could replace Greeks with Philistines. Both Jews and Philistines are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. (laughs) There are no good guys. There are none good. No, not one. No one is wearing white hats and and riding white horses in God's drama. Non-Christians, you can't be good enough. You can't be a good guy or a good lady or a good child. You can't be good enough. Which leads us into our second application. It's not about good guys and bad guys. It's about redeemed people and unredeemed people. You see, songs, literature, movies, wrestling, all want to divide the world into good guys and bad guys. But that is not a biblical division. According to the Bible, there are two groups, the redeemed and the unredeemed. The Bible doesn't deal with caricatures like the old western movies. It deals with real characters. Sometimes the good guys act like bad guys. Sometimes the heroes act like villains. Sometimes you can't tell the difference between the protagonist and the antagonist. Is that a baby face or a heel? What makes you bad is not if you have a snarl on your face. But it's that you have sin in your bloodstream. There is a unique little picture at the end of these two chapters where Jonathan is redeemed. Some price was paid to redeem his life. The soldiers secured his release by the payment of a price. That's practical redemption. But there is a spiritual redemption. Theologically, Jesus' saving work on the cross paid a ransom price for us. We are redeemed by his work on our behalf. The old song goes, he paid a debt he did not owe. Because we owed a debt we could not pay. 1 Corinthians 6 20, you were bought with a price. Jonathan needed redemption, but one greater than the soldiers could supply. He needed a physical redemption because he ate honey, he needed a spiritual redemption because Adam and Eve ate fruit. Old Testament people looked forward to that redemption. We look back to that redemption. But salvation always comes by being redeemed, not good. We're dealing with material that is 11 half centuries before the coming of Jesus Christ. But you can't understand it without Jesus Christ. They looked forward to a cross that hadn't happened yet. We look backward to a cross that's already happened. All the sacrifices in this story point to Jesus, the final sacrifice. Our problems ultimately are the same as those of the ancients. Sin is our problem. Jesus is the final sin is our problem. Christ, Jesus Christ is the final answer. Your problem. Our problem is more than pimples on the skin. It's sin in the bloodstream. There are no good guys in heaven. Only redeemed guys. Good guys and bad guys are all redeemed the same way. Repent and believe. Now the third application. All these good guys and bad guys point us to the perfect guy. You know, when you step away from the story, Saul had no reason to fear the Philistines destroying him in Israel. God didn't just make him king of the nation to let them die under his rule. He gave them a promise. I'm bringing a redeemer from this nation. I will not allow this nation to be wiped out. Earlier, I said there are no good guys in God's drama riding a white horse. Well, that's partially true. There is no good guy riding a white horse. But there is a perfect guy riding a Revelation 19 presents Jesus as a mighty warrior coming on a white horse. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His robe is dipped in blood. So whether you are a good guy or a bad guy, a moral woman or an immoral woman, an obedient child or a stubborn child, this is your only hope. The only one who can ride a white horse sinlessly. Let's stand and pray together. Father, you have been good to us, particularly good to us in sending Jesus to redeem us. Father, we revel in that redemption. We revel in your goodness. As we sing, would you clothe our words in the righteousness of Christ? Would this praise be acceptable to you because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. We love thee because you first loved us. Church, let's sing. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church.